a few days after I became a Christian, I remember sitting in my college dorm by myself for hours saying, God, I know you're there, speak to me. And nothing happened. And I'll tell you, to this day, nothing has happened no matter what I've done and, and tried to do and pleaded in tears and blood and sweat and tears. Uh, it, it, it's still the same silence. Hi, this is Rob Stone from Duns Creek Baptist Church, and you are listening to Duns Creek Conversations, a weekly podcast about faith, growth, discovery, and the journey that God is leading each and every one of us on. On season three of Duns Creek Conversations, we have been talking about stories of messy faith. And today, we will be talking, perhaps, about the messiest faith story of all. The faith story of someone who walks into and walks away from faith. Obviously, there's a lot that you're going to hear today that you're not going to agree with and that I don't agree with. But the goal of this podcast is not to provide you with more information that you already agree with. In fact, the goal of today's conversation is to help us understand that people who walk away from faith have real pain connected to the faith they have lost. Today we're going to be talking to my friend Brian Terriak. Brian came to faith in Jesus as a freshman in college and spent 20 years devoutly following Jesus in a fundamentalist setting, a reformed setting, and eventually the Orthodox Catholic traditions before finally walking away from faith altogether. I want you to hear his story today because his story is a pretty common story. Yeah, so um, the way I would classify it was I grew up in a liberal uh, Reformed church, and it wasn't really taken seriously by my parents uh, or me or my brother, Um, but essentially we went through catechism there and, you know, went through the motions, you know, we were baptized as infants, um, found out later. And uh, we went through Sunday, Sunday school classes, uh, got catechized, and then got confirmed in the church. And then after that, we never went again, except for maybe Christmas or Easter, as the stereotype goes. So, um, so yeah, I mean, essentially, what I remember is they solidified that, you know, there was a creator that made everything, and that made sense to me. And... Um, I knew that Jesus rose from the dead. It sounded spooky, like a Halloween story. I didn't get it. Um, and so that's all I really remember. I didn't know necessarily the why. I didn't know anything about the sin issue. Why did he have to die or, or resurrect? But essentially grew up a uh, liberal form church, didn't take it seriously. My parents didn't take it seriously. Um, and then uh, as most teenagers go through uh, that uh, anxious period of questioning and wondering. I also did myself asking questions, you know, why am I here? What's the purpose to all of this? And, uh, you know, that kind of set me up perfectly to be receptive to hearing a gospel message when I came to Flagler College. It's one of those things that, uh, like I said, you're, you're teed up for, 
you, you know, that, that age, that late teenage, early 20s, going to school, trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life, who you're going to be, where, where you're going to go, a lot of questions. And so, um, you know, hearing, you know, this is where religions can be very appealing to people in those kinds of spots. And it, it certainly was to me uh, because I was looking for big answers in life that I wasn't finding anywhere and Christianity came along via my roommate and sweetmates at, at college and offered up answers. At the time I would call myself an agnostic. I didn't even know what that meant at that time period. Uh, but all the sweetmates, uh, there's three of them, they were all born again Christians. Um, and out of nowhere, you know, we would all hang out and eventually they started talking to us. Um, me and my atheist roommate about Christianity and Jesus and the gospel. And so we just started having essentially arguments and discussions. It was very peaceful, but we just talk about these things. We talk about the age of the earth. They would talk about the age of the earth being 6,000 years old. And we're like, you're crazy and all this kind of stuff. And so we had a lot of interesting conversations and ultimately, you know, because I had a little bit of background hearing a little bit about Christianity growing up, um, you know, it resonated with me to some extent. And, you know, one of the things it ultimately came down to is like, listen, here, there's a reason why I can't believe in God. I've done so much bad stuff in my life. I'm not good. I'm not worthy. Uh, there's no way I could just pretend like everything's okay with God, like, like a flip of a switch. And that's when, as you could, as your listeners probably know, wow, I wish someone would say that to me, right? So they, uh, they uh, said, that's the greatest thing you ever said. Did not expect that. And the person um, that was there, he said, you know, that's right. None of us are good. None of us are worthy. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's why Jesus died for us, for our sins. And that was the first time I ever heard that in my life. I was 19 years old. And, uh, you know, it was very moving. And um, shortly after that, I remember praying, you know, uh, for the first time, probably ever in a serious sense, saying, God, if you're there, draw me to yourself. A week later, uh, talking with a more fundamentalist Christian, um, we started looking naturally at the book of Revelation and looking at prophecies and uh, seeing how these things are unfolding before our eyes, uh, depending on how you interpret some of these things. But that was very uh, compelling also at the time, looking at these things look like they're being fulfilled today. And uh, later that night, eventually, uh, he quoted a, a Bible verse from the end of Matthew 28, where right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. And, you know, at that point, I broke down and was crying and, and it was very moving. And I just called out to God, uh, asking uh, for forgiveness, saying I was sorry and saying that, you know, Lord, I want to believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again. And I remember like almost instantaneously after saying those words in the prayer with, with great tears, it was probably like 3 a.m. in the morning, uh, something changed. Like I, I physically felt different, something changed. I calmed down and I had a, a great sense of peace uh, come upon me. And uh, later that night, you know, my friend that was with me was asking, like, do you think you got saved? And I said, I think so. And then I was talking with another Christian that same night. I don't know what people are doing at four in the morning, but someone was around. <laughs> and uh, we, were, we were talking 
And uh, he was like, you know, if you died right now, where would you go? I said, oh, I, I think I would go to heaven. And he said, why? I said, well, because Jesus, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again. And he says, that's right. And he said, uh, you know, uh, believe every word of the Bible. And that is something that I took extremely seriously for two decades of my life. It, it, that was that was real. Absolutely. It, and you almost immediately find yourself in a, a really, really fundamentalist yes. setting. Talk, talk to us a little bit about that and, and what, what were some of the particulars, um, some, some of the, the things that stand out to you about that church and about that, about that experience and then kind of what it did for your faith or, or your experience with God during that period of time. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, after that conversion experience, it was very real. And people, even my atheist roommate, he noticed a dramatic change in my life immediately. Like, he, he was, like, stunned. He was very confused what had happened. Uh, talking to my family, they were also stunned and shocked by what had happened because I was a completely different person. My interests had changed. My appetite had changed. Uh, my focus had changed. And so... Um, Shortly after that, the person that was probably the primary witness uh, in my life at that point, he was a King James onlyist, um, very strict fundamentalist uh, sect in Christianity. And within probably a week, it became a very important issue that the King James Bible is really the only one you can trust in English. It's, it's the Word of God. The other ones, there's counterfeits. And then there were episodes where we would look up passages in the NIV and compare it to the KJV or you know, the NESV and ESV and the KJV and look, see, look how the King James is, is much better than some of these other versions. How come they're missing verses in the NIV? How come it changes this? How come it changes that? And so, you know, naturally, I, when I first became Christian, I didn't know where John 3.16 was in the Bible, okay? So I had, I had no context, I had no idea of the underlying issues. I did shortly thereafter. And so I guess one thing that I would say is almost immediately I was thrown into Christian apologetics. Primarily first with uh, the Bible, the doctrine of the Bible, uh, translations, apologetics related to that. Um, and so I was just engulfed in that and then probably simultaneously uh, Apologetics concerning, you know, the whole creation evolution debate, uh, young earth, old earth, gap theory, all this stuff that most people have never heard of, probably, especially with some of the uh, gap theory stuff, but definitely not something a young Christian should be probably exposed to or be delving in at all. And, and, and the way I would make sense of it is by this analogy if you have kids, you know your kids. It's just built into them to believe anything you tell them, right? And so when you're born again, especially with the amount of ignorance I had about Christianity growing up, uh, that experience was so moving and compelling. I was shocked that I had this dramatic change. I felt at the time that this proved God was real, that Jesus was there. He, you know, all these things about him were true. And so based upon assuming that this is real and legit and what this person suggested worked, you give the benefit of the doubt to some of these other things. 
And so, and I think it's normal and natural in life to do that with people, right? You give, you, most people probably they're going to give the benefit of the doubt and even trust people to an extent until that proves not to be wise otherwise. And so I gave the benefit of the doubt. I got caught up in a lot of these uh, hair splintering issues, not knowing. And I thought I was doing the Lord's work because this is what they were doing. Yeah. You know? So in the, at the time, it, did any of that strike you as, I mean, it seems, this seems strange or it seems like we're making a big issue out of this. Or was it one of those things, kind of like you said, like you came to faith, the faith was real, and these are the people that led you there. So yeah. this, this must be it. That's a great question because it was not even a year later because I literally essentially stopped studying uh, at college, which really wasn't interested in doing anyway at that point. But I focused all my time studying the Bible, studying theology, studying these uh, apologetic works. And at the end of the day, I concluded there is no evidence, physical, uh, there is no lineage to trace from the original manuscripts to the King James Bible that this is the book, this is the only thing. Like, it cannot be done. And I remember telling that to my fundamentalist Christian friends at the time, and I got a lot of heat for that. And it got so bad that I got a call randomly one day from a fellow Christian from the church I attended in New York City. Uh, asking, you know, what's going on? I heard you don't believe the Bible anymore. So now I was starting to get slandered by my fellow fundamentalist Christians because the way I saw how God preserved his word was a little different than the way they did. And so now all of a sudden that meant I, I, I didn't even really, really believe the Bible anymore. And so real quick, I started to pick up on that. And it was, it was sad to see and troubling to see how quickly things could change if you're no longer part of these narrow, constrained group rules. Uh, so that became apparent right away. And I, you know, ever since then, uh, I've definitely been the type of person to try to look at more sides uh, than just the one I'm particular in at that point in time, which I think which we'll get to probably later on in this conversation, explains yeah. a lot of the other things uh, to end up where I'm ultimately at at this point. So I think you know, around this idea, I mean, so it takes you basically a year of that kind of fundamentalism. And every, what the, the, dan the potential danger in any kind of fundamentalism is everything becomes not equally true, everything becomes equally important. Yeah. And so every every issue becomes the difference between faith and no faith. That yes. that that to not believe this one particular issue is now somehow a denial of faith in Jesus. Yes. And and that is something that uh a lot of people probably have experienced, and it is sad to see that. And uh, I think a lot of the people that are caught up in that, they're well-meaning. They're not, um, a lot of it is what they either were brought up with or were also brought into for whatever reason. And I think, again, it goes back to it worked. Something worked for them at some point in that world, and they just gave the benefit of the doubt to some of these other 
odd things that that some people hold to. And uh, a lot of the times, a lot of people don't get out of it because any kind of questioning or thinking for yourself about a lot of these issues is not not tolerated, uh, not looked uh, nicely upon. Put it put it that way. Even though I was not seeing how God preserved his word the same as some of my fundamentalist friends at the time, I still believe the King James was the best in English. And a lot of that had to do with, uh, it was strong on the deity of Christ. There was nothing I had seen up until that point that, uh, would, that showed me otherwise that the King James actually is weaker in some areas about the deity of Christ. And again, the, this topic probably sounds strange to a lot of people. Why, why is this such a big deal? Because these people made it a big deal. Like, no, in, in 1 Timothy 3.16, and he says, God was manifest in the flesh, not he. If it says he, that's a counterfeit satanic Bible. Now, this is the language that was used. So if you love Jesus and you're naive and don't know any better, and you hear someone speaking this strongly, and it's literally in writing, you see some of these other versions say he was manifest in the flesh, but then the King James says God was manifest in the flesh. And they throw these questions at you like, why would they change that? Why would they try to weaken the deity of Christ there? You're just going to go along with it probably. So I, I attended a King James-only church for probably... 12 years, but as the time went on, I became weaker and weaker in some of those positions. And uh, to be quite honest too, like uh, liberal forms of Christianity never made sense to me. And to be honest with you, they still don't make sense to me. So I, I was more persuaded of more conservative Christianity, generally speaking. So I think that's probably why I still stayed in those circles, um, mainly because they a lot of the Christians I met, too, at college and in life, uh, from my perspective, they didn't take the Bible seriously. They didn't really believe all of it. And again, I was told from day one, in the height of my ecstasy of conversion experience, you need to believe every word of the Bible. And anyone that didn't believe it as much as I thought they should believe it, I wouldn't really consider what they had to say with any weight. So yeah, I was probably in that world, more or less, for 12 years. But as the years went on, it just became weaker and weaker in terms of some of the stances that they took. Like I just couldn't, couldn't rationally couldn't, couldn't do it anymore. You ultimately leave the, the fundamentalist background. What was it yeah. that led you out of it? And where did you go from it? Okay, so let me go back a few years. So like this was probably a few years after. And so like they had their King James onlyest books in the church bookstore. And there was uh, uh, author, I think her name was Gail Ripplinger, and she wrote several books on the King James Only issue. And there was someone that everyone in the King James Only movement despised, James White, a reformed uh, Christian. And he wrote a book called The King James Only Controversy. And he is not a King James Only proponent. He argues against it. And it, he was like the boogeyman. Like, you, you don't talk about him. You don't read his work. Your like warnings go off if you if you even think about reading the other side's uh, material on this topic. And so, eventually, I just bought the book and read it. And the person that was slandering me many years ago when I said I don't believe God preserved this, His Word the way King James only is said, I think it is a little different that same person 
was warning me, don't read that book. And I asked, did you read it? No, he never read it. So obviously I read it. I'm kind of that way when people tell me not to do something. So I, I ended up reading the book and uh, I also watched, you know, during this time too, a lot of reading uh, of theology, a lot of uh, podcasts, listening to sermons, YouTube, you name it. This was my steady diet for almost 20 years. But anyway, I eventually got, uh, got to the point in the book where he addressed the issue of the deity of Christ. Because I, I was, no matter what I had seen, the King James was always very strong on the deity of Christ and it was indisputable until he showed there was a place that the modern versions actually are stronger on the deity of Christ than the King James. And that was like the last straw. It was like, because at that point, at that late in the game, I still held the King James in high regard. I still was my favorite uh, version. Um, but there's nothing left. Like, I can't say it's superior anymore. And so I realized at that moment in time that I wasn't a King James uh, proponent anymore. And I also did something that uh, was critical for later, which is I asked, I asked myself this question, wow, if I was wrong about this for over a decade, what else have I been wrong about? Because I was persuaded, okay? I was very persuaded of this stuff. I was very sincere and devout. I uh, persuaded others to be King James only over the years also. So I was, I was very, it was a very big deal for me to change that position. And so I asked myself, you know, what, what else are you wrong about? What else have you not considered? Because, uh, and I think that's, that's an important thing to think about because a lot of people, they're set in their ways and, it's, and that's fine. But you always gotta, I used to say, you always gotta leave a little room for the Holy Ghost. Meaning, you can be persuaded wherever you're at right now, but don't close yourself off to any other possibilities, any other uh, options. And so... I've, I've tried to do that. I'm a little slow, apparently, because it took over a decade to get to that point. But um, that is when I was like, okay, what else am I wrong about? Again, giving the benefit of the doubt, right? So this man got me out of this very strict fundamentalism, uh, you know, defeated the last argument I was holding on to for King James Onlyism. He happened to be Reformed, and I'm like, oh, I know the fundamentalists hated Reformed theology, and I understand why. But... Uh, <laughs> They, uh, it was like, okay, well, let me, let me see what, what this guy believes. Let me see what he thinks. This man has, you know, debated over 150 times about all kinds of topics with Christians and Muslims and atheists, yada, yada. So I started consuming his content and uh, reading people like R.C. Sproul and just trying to get an understanding of what Reformed theology was. And one thing I'll say real quick about it, too, is one thing that was refreshing was they took history seriously. The fundamentalists did not do that really. They had like a couple things, the Waldensians and Albigensians, but that was it. Like it, it just goes from Jesus, the apostles, to Martin Luther, to the 1900s. And, it's, and so it was refreshing to see uh, Christians take uh, history seriously. And that also I think was very appealing to me. That also kind of move me to where I went to next. It's interesting to me in listening to you talk about it that you really knew for years leading up to it that you were really done with this kind of KJV only fundamentalism 
but there's this like just kind of one last straw you're holding on to and then you read a book and it defeats that argument and it's almost like the blinders fell off and and you suddenly went okay if i'm it's almost like you went if i'm letting go of this mm-hmm. because 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 the way fundamentalism works the fundamentalism makes everything equally important yeah if everything's equally important and you're willing to let go of this then it almost becomes this moment of going all right well then what what am i holding on to like yeah. what what it is everything up for grabs is everything yes. open mm-hmm. and and what comes out of that of course i mean so many people so many adults go through um faith deconstruction and reconstruction over and over again in their life but for really the next six years for you, it it was constantly deconstructing, reconstructing, yep. you know, tearing the whole thing down, constructing again, tearing the whole thing down, constructing again. Yeah. So talk to me about your experience in, in the reform tradition. Um, what what drew you there, what you what you um what connected to your heart there and then what ultimately led you away from it to Uh the the more orthodox catholic um faith experience and then from there ultimately to a a a, the maybe the most difficult deconstruction which is a deconstruction of faith altogether yeah so there's a lot a lot here so one thing I'll caveat, because uh, a lot of this is more intellectually based, so from a personal, emotional, psychological perspective, there was decades of an absent, silent God. Um, and I think this is important to interject here before we move on to that, because a few days after I became a Christian, I remember sitting in my college dorm by myself for hours saying, God, I know you're there, speak to me, and nothing happened. And I'll tell you, to this day, nothing has happened no matter what I've done and, and tried to do and pleaded in tears and blood and sweat and tears. Uh, it, it, it's still the same silence. So all of that personal, emotional uh, turmoil builds up over time as well. So that's important to keep in mind in parallel to from the more theological, philosophical you're in many ways you're looking for you're looking for the better intellectual argument you're looking for the more complete doctrinal or theological argument yeah but all of this we are now on year 13 14 15 Mm -hmm. of of essentially the absence of the voice of god in your life that that you've that you've sincerely desperately wanted and longed for absolutely i was told i could have a personal relationship with jesus that turned out to not be true. And uh, for the longest time, I thought it was a problem with me. And I was willing to do anything and try anything to get that relationship that I was told I could have. And what it turned out being was, I mean, Christians know, you just feel led, you feel this, you feel that. I was impressed on my heart. That That is not what I would call a relationship. That is... You can, you can do that. You know, you can be moved emotionally by characters and, and movies and books, and try to emulate their behaviors or whatever. 
but I, I don't I wouldn't call that a personal relationship if, if you if someone defines a personal relationship that way then yeah I had a personal relationship with Jesus but the way we're talking right now I never did but uh, but yeah so that all that's going on and I, I think this is a perfect segue because all of this turmoil I'm like how do I make sense of this and reform theology comes in with this doctrine of election and predestination and it helps answer things that from a non-reformed perspective, you can't really answer adequately. And there's reasons why it can't be answered adequately, in my opinion, because it makes the Christian God essentially look like a monster and not just. And so a lot of Christians aren't willing to go there, and I understand that completely. With reformed theology, I remember reading R.C. Sproul talking about predestination and election, and I had at that point two kids, one on the way, or she might have been born at that point, and realized, and thinking like the implications of this theology means it is probable, or there's potential that one of my children was uh, predestined to be damned, essentially, because that's what Reformed theology uh, teaches, and she, this, this child can't do anything about it. And not only that, I can't do anything about it if I end up not being one of the elect from the foundations of the world, right? So, oh. so then, so then, if if you if you're feeling that pretty pretty early on, then what's the attraction to the? So how how do you? I mean, because if you arrive there yeah. pretty quickly, how do you stay in? How do you stay in a reformed church for as long as you did? If very early on you're going, the implications yes. of this faith system are uh, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically untenable for me. Uh, because if, if this is what is true, it's what is true, right? And so, like, you can, and this is what I've learned over time, is there's enough wiggle room in the Bible to really teach Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Reformed Theology, Baptists, even King James Onlyism. If I had to argue for King James Onlyism today, I could probably do a pretty good job. But that's, that's the thing is... Uh, the danger of stringing Bible verses along without context, without history, without all this stuff. You can come to all kinds of interesting conclusions. Um, and the history of Protestantism shows what happens when there's no reins on, on, on uh, interpretation. So, um, so yeah, I, I did not feel good. And I remember telling my wife, like, this doesn't make me feel good at all, but if this is what is true, um, what, what can I do about it? I might as well just submit to it. And so that's, that's kind of been my attitude all along, though, because that's what a Christian is supposed to do, submit and be obedient. And, uh, you know, even Paul says in Romans, you know, when he's talking about all this stuff in Romans 9, and he, you know, the reader of, of Paul's words is thinking, well, how is God just here? You know, if, if God chooses to have mercy on some, you know, why doesn't he have mercy on all that kind of, that whole conversation there? Paul just says, who, who are you to reply against God? And that's where I was, and that's what I had to uh, essentially swallow, even though it didn't make me feel good. So I think if you ask most Reformed Christians, they're like most other human beings. Uh, they don't wish ill on anybody. You know, they want everyone to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, but how they interpret certain passages, they have to face that reality, and they're willing to say it. And it does, uh, from a apologetical perspective it does answer some things that are very hard to answer unless you embrace reformed theology so even though i didn't like it i was willing to do it uh and embrace it if it was true because i'm not i'm not the arbiter of truth i don't know 
uh, everything, and uh, I'm I'm willing to submit to whatever the scripture said. The the desire there's such a clear desire in you as you're walking through all of this to I don't know if I'm projecting too much here when I say this, but almost to please or appease the God, the the, the Jesus that you believe in. Absolutely. That that essentially the, it's almost as if your way of dealing with this long silence from from Jesus is, I'm just not surrendered enough to the truth, you know, so... Let let me let me be fully submitted, fully surrendered. Then I'll hear from you. Almost, almost seems everything to be... I possibly can do, and I think uh, it demonstrates that I'm like I'm willing. You know, even if something's repulsive, uh, even if something's uh, appears unjust, if if this is what God says, then who am I to question it? I will, you know, trust and obey, follow all of that stuff. Um, so. That, that was my attitude for, for that whole time period. It still was, you know, even as a King James onlyist, it was as a Reformed uh, person for a short stretch of time. But uh, it's hearing all of that stuff, and this is actually kind of funny. I would say there's a couple people, I used to lead a Bible study for, I don't know, maybe a decade at college and after college. Uh, with students there and, and some friends that stayed in the area and there's a couple people that went to the Bible study that I joke about they ruined Christianity for me because I was all fine with a silent God but then all of a sudden these Christians are telling me God's speaking to them every day and God told them this and God told them that and I'm like what's wrong with me this ain't happening to me and honestly I would say that was the beginning of the end of my faith because I was not and am still not willing to play that game of I think this thought that comes into my my mind is God today. It's it's interesting talking to you about it now because because it's you know again it's the context. There's the the context of what you're going through now and in, in where you've arrived now, but but I I, I want to be as faithful as we can to kind of walk through your process of arriving here. Um, as as you start to become disillusioned might be a good way to say it, with the Reformed tradition, you find, at least for a period of time, a a great deal of excitement and enthusiasm for the Catholic, the Orthodox, the the, essentially the early church. This this what is what is the most what is the most authentic version of this Christianity? And you you spend a lot of time really looking at the early church. So talk to us about that. So Going back to what I said earlier about what I appreciated with Reformed people is they took history seriously, um, you know, and they can go back 500 years. The King James only can go back maybe 100 years if that if they're lucky. Uh, we'll round up for them. So that was appealing to me because it's like I'm no longer in this very tiny minority group. It's like, hey, I have 500 years of people that think similarly, and I remember right around when I was starting to embrace Reformed theology a thought popped into my head that said, why are you only going back 500 years? Why not go back, you know, to to millennial, right? Yeah, why not go back to Jesus? Exactly. And I remember, I'm like, this is too much to deal with right now. Because I'm already going through the upheaval of exiting publicly the King James Onlyist movement into the Reformed world. It's like, this is going to have to be for another day. And so, because it's just too much. It's just too much. I mean, and so eventually, as time went on, the reason why I, I actually started, I have 
a set of the early church fathers over here. And uh, it it's 10 volumes covering from 0 AD to 400 AD-ish. And uh, a lot of the early church fathers had a lot to say. And the reason I, I started getting into it was to prove Catholicism was false. Okay. And so... I'm, I'm studying Reformed theology, and they had their guys too, right? So you have 500 years of Reformed theology, and then you make a huge jump to St. Augustine, and then a huge jump to, like, Paul. <laughs> it's like, there's a lot of gaps here. So, like, the fundamentalists, they had really big gaps between their heroes and Christianity. Reformed people didn't have as many gaps. And then if you look at Catholicism and Orthodoxy, they don't have any gaps. Uh, give them credit. They, they can trace themselves back to the apostles, uh, whether you agree with their theology or not. And so I started reading the early church fathers, you know, people like Polycarp, Justin Martyr, uh, Ignatius, Irenaeus, and I started seeing they were not Protestant. They sounded more like Catholic and Orthodox Christians, and it shocked me. Like, it was like another undercut. So like, I had, you know, that embracing King James Oleism was such a huge foundational thing in my Christian life, that was undercut. And then, you know, I become Reformed, and then I, they're, they're saying, you know, Reformed theology is historic Christianity. I start reading historical Christianity in their own, in their own words, and they're not sounding like Protestants. And so now that's undercut, and so I'm at the point now where everything is just destroyed. I have nothing left, and at the time, I was like, well, maybe this is good, God, because I'm, I'm clean, having a clean slate to build upon again, you know. And so, you know, reading, reading the early church fathers, and there's so much material that they've wrote, you, you can read it in, in probably several lifetimes, all the stuff that's available. So I took a shortcut and read a book that I highly recommend if you want a nice survey of what uh, a lot of Christians for the first thousand years said, called uh, The uh, Fathers Know Best something like that by Jimmy Aiken from Catholic Answers. It's really good because it has a bunch of different topics like on Mary, the Immaculate Conception, uh, the Virgin Birth, uh, the Deity of Christ. And it just said, and it just uh, has a bunch of citations from church fathers for the first thousand years of Christianity, what they said about these topics. It's fascinating. So if you want a good overview of that, I, I would recommend that. But I started reading that and again, I'm not seeing Protestantism. I'm not seeing Reformed theology. I'm not seeing Baptist theology. I'm not seeing any of that. Uh, they're, they're believing in infant baptism. They're believing in baptismal regeneration. Uh, all these kinds of things. And uh, they're, they're thinking very highly of Mary, uh, calling her the mother of God, all these things, the Theotokos. And so that was a huge upheaval. And then um, I, I read a book. It's kind of funny. This is kind of going back too, but I used to work at a job where I knew a guy who used to be King James only, and now he's an Eastern Orthodox deacon. And it's like, how do you go from a fundamentalist King James Oldest to an Eastern Orthodox Christian? And it fascinated me, and he gave me a book many years ago uh, about what Protestants need to know about the Orthodox Church, and I didn't read it until a few years ago, right in the middle of all this turmoil. I'm like, maybe now's a good time to read this book. And I literally read the whole thing in one day. I couldn't put it down. And it made more sense to me. It made more sense to me than King James Onlyism. It made more sense to me than Reformed theology. Uh, so again, it helped 
plug the holes that I kept finding in all of these systems looking for this perfect system. And so that helped, but lo and behold, they have holes too. <laughs> they all have holes. They all aren't perfect systems. In, in, in the bigger issue is that the constant pursuit of a, of a perfect system yeah. still left you feeling like there was a God you were longing to have a relationship with and you weren't hearing from. Yes. And I think this is, this is important, and I think some people might res- resonate with this. I was doing these things because there's no interaction with the God that all these things I'm trying to do to get his attention or get communion or what, like it's just not happening. And so it's like, if I can do these activities, it kind of dull, it kind of dulls the silence of God, like from like, why is that there? Why, why, why aren't you, why, if he's willing to die for you, why isn't he willing to talk to you? Just simple things like that. I mean, really that stuff bothers me. And then you have Especially from a fundamentalist world, the fear of hellfire and feel of eternal fear of eternal damnation, uh, you're not going to be uh, as quick to entertain some of these things because you have that fear, you have that uh, threat, and it's better to do uh, hedge, hedge your bets, I guess, uh, for a while. But um, that that is lingering. But a lot of people, I did it. I did this activity and called it relationship with God. It ain't. It's just activity, and. Uh, I wanted the relationship, I wanted the communion, the fellowship, uh, and I was willing to even become Catholic or Orthodox if that's where it was at because one of the reasons, reading the Church Fathers, they believed in the real presence uh, in, in the Eucharist that uh, Jesus is physically manifest in the bread and wine, whether it, you use the word transubstantiation or not, it wasn't just a, a memorial. There was something real there. And I was like, well, if what they're saying is true, and this, and this is the closest you can get to Jesus on earth, I've never experienced this. Maybe this is what I'm missing. Maybe all my life the reason why I haven't had this close communion with God is because I've been missing on actual communion because Protestant communion is not the same. And so for a while, I was like, that's, that's got to be it. After over two decades of trying to get communion and fellowship with God, I'm like, this has got to be it. This is what I've been missing because it makes sense because this is the centerpiece of Catholic and Orthodox Christianity is the, the Eucharistic meal, and I never really partook of it in the right context with the priests, all that stuff. And so I was like, that explains it. That explains the silence. That explains the, the, the lack of personal relationship. Obviously, I'm not convinced of that now, but that's what I was thinking several years ago is, that's it. I just got to go through that process, and then I'll, I'll have it. It's, uh, it's very emotional to think about it and talk about it, to be honest, because I truly dedicated 20 years of my life searching for this God, having fellowship and communion with this God in a real tangible way, not in a make-believe way. And I just never found it. And there was fear, the problem's me, whether I thought that or that was the suggestion of others, whether it's true or not. Whatever, whatever the reason was, just not there. And so eventually it got to the point where I woke up one day and I said, I'm not praying anymore. I'm not willing to pray 
anymore because I feel like a hypocrite praying because I don't think anything's going on here, nothing's happening. Um, and that was huge for me to get to that point. I mean, literally weeks before that, I was uh, doing the divine uh, office, which is a bunch of Catholic prayers you do seven times a day. They have uh, prayer books. And uh, I was doing all that, uh, just trying anything to get any kind of response from this, this uh, entity uh, to no avail. So that was a big deal. And I would say that was the, the beginning of, of where I ultimately ended up because I allowed myself to be okay with facing the reality that I don't really believe this because I have no reason to believe it. I can't make myself do this. And I think that's the key too. It's like, I don't think you, you can choose to believe. Uh, you are either persuaded of whatever it is and you believe it or you don't. And no amount of faking uh, can change that. When that dam breaks, what bursts forth in it is now 20 years of frustration, hurt, mm -hmm. betrayal, yeah. um, all, all of the things that come with, I did all the stuff I was supposed to do. I did, I did all of the things and you're not there. Yep. And, and that comes and that in in and, and again part of part of that is a is a mourning process when when people when when people have kind of an ultimate deconstruction of faith a, a death occurs yes um and and so there's there's a mourning process and there's some pretty you know pretty typical stages of grief that that come with that so what was what was what was it like walking through some of those with you and and, and I guess the better question would be what has it been like walking through those? And, and do you feel like you're on the other side of those grief stages at this point? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think the how I feel now is, or at least when, when, I, when I realized I'm no longer praying. When I first became a Christian, and it was a real experience, it was profound, it, it lasted obviously for a very long time, but what happened was what preceded that conversion event and that experience was a lot of years of turmoil and inner conflict. Christianity came along and brought resolution to the conflict I already had. And obviously, whether Christianity is true or not, whenever you find resolution to conflict, there's peace, there's calm, there's rest from the storm, right? And so I then attributed that to Jesus, to God to the, the Holy Spirit. But 20 years later of silence, uh, which I'm sure a lot of people can relate to, now I have a new set of conflict. It's just within Christianity, within my, my uh, walk with Christ, and me choosing to not pray and being okay with it brought calm, the same ecstasy that I felt when I first became a Christian. And this has nothing to do with what's true or not. It has to do with, I had conflict, I found something that brought resolution, and now there's peace. So at the, 20 years later, I stopped praying, I stopped being a Christian, I find peace, joy, comfort, because the conflict's gone. And uh, I'm okay with saying I don't know again. I think that's one of the other reliefs. Uh, 
that, that I've had to, but when it came out that uh, I was no longer a believer, I heard all kinds of interesting things said. Uh, some good, some bad, some way out there, as you'd expect. And, and I get it, but one thing I would definitely say is, if someone comes out to you that's struggling uh, with their faith, whatever, do not be dismissive. Do not uh, say things like, oh, well, you just gotta keep praying, or oh, you just gotta do this, or don't try to offer solutions, because they've probably tried all the ones you're offering. Um, and definitely don't say, well, then maybe you never really were. I've heard that one. Uh, so you, you, you gotta be careful with, with some of that stuff, but just treat them like another human being. That's all it really takes. It's, it's nothing, you don't have to pontificate and, and pretend you know why they're at where they're at. Just be a human being that cares about them. And uh, you know, that, that's what I would say, is to, to someone that is, is a Christian, someone that's struggling with their faith comes to you and talks to you, don't be dismissive. Listen to them, care about them, talk to them. And uh, that's probably something Jesus would do. I think that would be safe to say. I've been friends with Brian for a few years and have been able to walk alongside of him as he has been experiencing this loss of faith. And I want to share with you the ways in which I have been challenged by our conversation today and our conversations over the last two years. I was raised in the evangelical church and attended an evangelical seminary. I'm in my 20th year of ministry. And my entire expectation for Christian apologetics doesn't have an easy answer or even a clear answer for someone like Brian. And I would love to tell you that it does. But I will tell you what I believe today. I believe that Brian's story is not over. And that in the place of deconstruction, I have hope that there might again be something reconstructed. But if that never comes, I know that I care for my friend and that he is not alone in his faith journey. I want to thank him so much for being on the podcast today. Duns Creek Conversations is produced by me, Rob Stone, for Duns Creek Baptist Church in San Mateo, Florida. Duns Creek Baptist Church is a community alive by grace and known by love. You can find out more about us online at dunscreekbaptist.org. We'll see you next week.